Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter uh, 1. Matthew chapter 1. And I'm going to be doing something this morning I've kind of wanted to do for a while, uh, but I haven't quite known how to do it. Uh, and I think I figured it out yesterday, last week by missing my third point. And uh, the way things came together, I think organized things in my mind in a way that I hope will help all of us. One of the things that I haven't, I don't know if I've said or at least belabored explicitly as we've been looking at Matthew, is that Matthew's introduction to Jesus is organized around five fulfilled prophecies. So when we think about uh, Matthew is introducing us to Jesus and he wants us to understand Jesus as a Jew, and so that's why he starts with the Jewish genealogy. So if you want to understand Jesus, you need to understand he was a, a, someone who came from a Jewish genealogy. It doesn't end there. Jesus' deep relationship to God's work with His people, Israel, doesn't end there. In fact, as, as Matthew basically says in Matthew 1 and 2, hey, I want you to know Jesus. I'd like to introduce Him to you. I want, I want you to know who He is. The way He does that is by giving us five prophecies and the way they're fulfilled. Five prophecies and the way they're fulfilled. So who's Jesus, Matthew? Well, He's the fulfiller of these particular five prophecies. Prophecy. So what I want to do is read to you the last verse of the genealogy. If you're new here, this will feel like a lot of background work, but stick with me. I want to read you the last verse of the genealogy, and then I'm going to read you uh, through the first two chapters. And most Bibles have found some way to indicate that they're quoting from the Old Testament. In the ESV, they will have sort of sectioned the, the prophecy or the, the quote from the Old Testament off to the side, indented it. Some um, translations may have it italicized. But your Bible, if you, if you notice, like, well, why did the typesetting just change there? It's because the Bible is trying to indicate to you this is a quote from the Old Testament. This is Matthew showing you how he, writing in the New Testament, is quoting from the Old. Let me read to you Matthew chapter 1, verse 17, through to the end of chapter 2. Summarizing the genealogy, Matthew says, So all the generations of Abraham to David were 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. And just more review, because we're going to be moving out of these first two chapters. Who's Jesus? He's the son of David the king. Who's Jesus? He's the son of Abraham, the one who blessed the world. Who's Jesus? He's the one who gets you out of the exile. He's the one who gets people out of being exiled from God, which the Jews were when they were deported to Babylon. Verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, you should call his name Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, and here's the prophecy, 
Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, he knew her not until she had given birth, and he called his name Jesus. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod saw the king, Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, here's your second prophecy, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men and secret, secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold the star that they had seen when it rose before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill. Now you're starting. Ding, ding, ding. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had tricked by, was tricked, sorry, he had been tricked by the wise men became furious and he saw that he had been sorry then Herod when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all that region who were two years old or under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah a voice heard in Ramah weeping in loud lamentation Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when her Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. 
And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets, this time plural, what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Father, we pray that your word would be preached with sufficient clarity, Lord, that your spirit could show your people your glory. And Lord, just a glimpse of your glory will leave us more changed than we ever imagined. Lord, we change slower than we want. Some things seem undefeatable for us. Would you give us a glimpse of the glory of Jesus through my weakness and even the weakness of our own understanding? And would you change us from one degree of glory to another? Amen. Well, what I want to do this morning is to think with you about prophecy. And uh, in many crowds, that could get uh, tens of thousands of people to attend uh, a conference because people tend to love uh, thinking about prophecy. And sometimes, some of you actually grew up in circles where uh, the preacher would get out a big chart uh, and coordinate the world news with the particular prophecies of that day. And that's not what I'm going to do uh, this morning. When I'm talking about prophecy this morning, I'm actually not generally talking about prophecies that are yet to be fulfilled in the future. Here in Matthew, we're mainly focusing on prophecies that were fulfilled in Jesus. So they were prophecies made in the past, but so far in the past that they were really looking forward to the time of Christ. And Matthew is basically saying, it's here. He's here. These prophecies are fulfilled. So of course this gives us strength and encouragement that the Bible, the prophecies the Bible makes about our futures will come to pass. But first it just encourages us that God's a God who keeps His Word and we're going to watch Him fulfill these prophecies. Now, the main thing I'm, I'm going to do, and it's a little more technical, but the main thing, uh, it's like the word that will kill a sermon right there. You just drop that. And, okay, some of you are saying, no, I want it. So that's good. The, the main thing I want us to do is to notice that of these five prophecies, only one of them looks anything like what you think of when you think of the word prophecy. Maybe one and a half. When we think of a prophecy, we think of a prediction made about the future, right? That's what we think of. We think about someone's, the promised child will come and then. Some of you have read a thousand books where the ancient lore said, where the ancient prophet said, where, where there was a prediction that something would happen at a certain time in a certain place at a certain person, and that would be how God uh, fulfilled His Word. But of these five prophecies we're looking at this morning, only one looks like that. Only one makes a prediction like that, and then it's just straight up fulfilled in Jesus. The others work a little differently. And understanding how they work can really be key to understanding how our Bibles work. And so if you've ever found yourself reading your Bible and thinking, I wish I knew more how this fits together. I mean, I just read something. I think there's some spiritual encouragement in it, but I have no idea how it relates to Jesus, how the whole thing holds together, and it sure would be helpful if someone would put it together for me. That's what I'm going to try to do, is to show how these prophecies are fulfilled in Jesus Christ, even though these prophecies don't always look like what we think of when we think of the word prophecy. So I'm going to show you five. Here's the first one. 
It's a prophecy with a double fulfillment. It's a prophecy with a double fulfillment. Now, uh, it's the first prophecy. It's the one we talked about, uh, or it's the one we read about when we read uh, Matthew chapter 1, and we read the story of how Mary would give birth to a son, and then we heard the prophecy from Isaiah that predicted how this birth would happen, that it would be virgin conception, and we're told, before the virgin shall, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Now this prophecy comes from Isaiah chapter 7, and if you've got your Bible with you, you can turn back there. But this prophecy comes from, say, six, seven hundred years, seven hundred years before Jesus is born. But when you look at this prophecy in its context, when, if you're Isaiah, who wrote this prophecy for the first time, what you'll notice is it's pretty clear this prophecy is fulfilled nearly immediately after it's given. It's fulfilled nearly immediately after it's given. So in Isaiah chapter 7, let me set the context for you. Ahaz is the king of Judah. He's got two pesky kings knocking on his doorstep uh, trying to conquer him. The king of Syria and the king of Ephraim both want to take him out. And God says, hey, I'm going to give you a sign that God is with you. I'm going to give you a sign that I'm with you. And this sign is going to be a little baby. And before this little baby can even have any moral discernment, these two kings are going to be gone. In other words, don't you worry, Ahaz. I got this covered. The threat you're feeling so severely is going to be gone in a minute. I'm going to give you a sign that I am with you. And so you read that in Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 13. Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For behold, the boy knows before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. Hey, baby's going to be born. Baby, before the baby's even too far into the toddler years, these two kings are out. That's my promise that Emmanuel, God is with you. But you go down to Isaiah chapter 8, and it's not like Isaiah's thinking, man, I hope in 700 years a child comes that'll get rid of these two kings. No, he tells us that this child came right away in a way that was applicable to Ahaz, in a way that made a difference in Ahaz's life, in a way that made Ahaz relieved that he wasn't going to get slaughtered by two foreign kings. And if you look at chapter 8, verse 3, it says, And I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, Call his name Mahar Shahal Hashbaz. And all the kids in the playground were nice to him, I'm sure. But for behold, the, before the boy knows how to cry, my father and my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. Same kind of promise. Here comes this child. Before he even knows how to cry, mom and dad, before he's very far along, all your military problems will be gone. Isaiah 7 makes a promise. Isaiah 8, promise is fulfilled. And you're like, no, Matthew, you can't just go along in Isaiah and start saying things apply to Jesus. You can't just go along and take a promise that was fulfilled and say, 
psych, it'll be fulfilled in 700 years. Where would Matthew ever get the idea that he could have the gall or the nerve to say that this promise is finally fulfilled in somewhere else? Well, it's because of the way God started speaking to him even in the next chapter. So if you go to Isaiah chapter 9, you all know this verse, but now notice where it is, maybe for the first time. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, it says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now let's just put this together. You're Isaiah. You make this prophecy that a boy will come, will be called Emmanuel. He'll be a sign that God is with you. A little while later, the prophetess conceives, the baby's born, Ephraim and Syria go down, that they're eliminated as enemies, but that God keeps revealing stuff to you because you're a prophet. To you will be a son born, a child will be given, the government will be on his shoulders, he'll be from the house of David, he'll be everlasting father, prince of peace. And you're like, yeah, I'm pretty sure Mahar Shazbad, I'm pretty sure he wasn't all that. And so Matthew is left in that place that Peter told us the prophets were in. They searched diligently to know what time or place the Spirit of God was speaking to them about. And what Matthew discerned is that when a virgin conceived, oh, here it was. Here was the son that that first son pointed to. Here was the one that first prophecy fulfillment was pointing to in an ultimate fulfillment. It was coming in Jesus. This was the virgin would conceive, and now it would be God is with you, not just as a sign, but as a reality. Second prophecy. The second prophecy comes when the Magi, when the, um, when the Magi, the wise men, are coming to Herod to find out where the Christ will be born. And so they bring in the uh, local Bible experts, the scribes, and they ask them, and they say, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Now this is the only prophecy of all the prophecies we're going to look at this morning where it's a straight prediction and a straight fulfillment. But look at it in its original context. If you look back at Micah chapter 5, and you have to remember that the, these prophecies, when they were given, of course the Jewish people would have gone back and looked at their context. So what does, what does a Matthew drop for us? What does Matthew tell us? He says, a child is going to be born in Bethlehem. He's going to be a royal son. He's going to be a king. But unlike other kings, he's going to have a particular disposition. He's going to be a shepherd. He's going to be a shepherd to his people. Now look at, look at Micah and look at what Matthew left out between mentioning that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem and that Jesus would be a shepherd. Notice what Micah adds. 
Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth, and the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. One from the line of David will come from Bethlehem. He'll be a ruler. He will stand in the strength of the Lord and be a shepherd to his flock. When will he come? Well, verse 3 says he'll come when, when God's given up people. No doubt the exile here. He's sent them away from his presence. And he will come. He'll be the ruler of Israel when he sent these people away. And, the, and when she who is in labor has given birth. And the rest of his brothers shall return. So what, what's being prophesied here? What's being prophesied is these people of Israel were sent away into exile. Matthew didn't mention the deportation to Babylon by accident. He's not just pulling that out of his ear. Until these people are sent away, they will be sent away until one gives birth. And then once he, this one gives birth, he'll regather his people and they'll be shepherded by this coming king. In other words, Matthew is telling us in this straight prophecy, Jesus is the king who's come to regather people from being distant from God and to bring them to where he can shepherd them. Prophecy number three. The, the third and the fourth prophecies work like this. They're what I'll call a pattern repeated. A pattern repeated. So first you get this double fulfillment. There'll be a child. There was a child. There'll be a better child. Then you get this straight prophecy. He'll be born in Bethlehem. He's born in Bethlehem. Now you get a pattern repeated. What do I mean by that? Well, look at the prophecy there in uh, Matthew chapter 2. And you'll find it there in verse 15. It says, This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. This was the third point I didn't get to last week. So what happens is that uh, the, the, the wise men get word that, that Herod wants to kill Jesus. Uh, Joseph gets a dream that he better get down to Egypt. So he takes Jesus down to Egypt. There was about a community of about a million Jews living in Alexandria, Egypt at that time. Joseph and Mary would have settled among those Jews probably. And then Jesus comes up out of Egypt. Does that remind you of anything? Well, it reminded Matthew of something too. It reminded him of the fact that the people of God, who in the Old Testament were called the Son of God, Israel was often called my son, the people of God were brought out of Egypt. And what we're being told here is that Jesus is like that people being brought up out of Egypt. If you go back to Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, that's where this prophecy comes from. It comes from Hosea chapter 11. If you go back to Hosea chapter 11, what you find when you get to that prophecy is that it really doesn't read like a prophecy. 
If you just read the Bible, over and over and over, if you've read your Bible at all, you notice there's these, these retellings of the history of Israel. They're all, the Bible's always retelling the history of Israel. And here is Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. It says, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to Baals and burning offering to idols. That can't be a straight prophecy of Jesus. It says, I called Israel out of my son, and then they went and worshipped false gods. Anyone know the time in Jesus' life he did that? No, it didn't happen. So Hosea says, out of Egypt I called my son. He's just telling them, this is what I did with Israel. I called Israel out of Egypt. I called Israel out of Egypt. And then Matthew comes along and says, that's what's happening here again. Israel, the true son, Jesus, is being called up out of Egypt. Let me, let me try to illustrate this one way. Throughout the Bible, you have patterns. Patterns that are set. Right? What happens right after mankind sins? Adam and Eve kill two animals and clothe themselves in the skin of those animals. There's some sort of pattern. Something about dealing with human sins is going to involve sacrifice. You get to uh, the, the book of Exodus, and they're going to get out of Egypt, out of slavery. And what do they have to do? They have to take the blood of a lamb and paint it over the doorposts. And as you paint it over the doorposts, it's those houses that have blood on it that survive, or the firstborn survives, and those without blood die. Then you get into the Old Testament uh, law, and over and over and over it says that you're to offer blood of bulls and goats for your sins. And then you get to the New Testament, and John the Baptist sees Jesus for the first time, and what does he say? You seem interesting, what's your address? No. He doesn't say, what's your career? He says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's saying all these patterns that have been set in the Old Testament, you fulfill them all. And in the same way that God took Israel out of Egypt, what we're being told here is that Jesus is this new Son. He's this new perfect Son who's being brought out of Egypt. He's going to breathe a new deliverer. And, and Jesus, listen, if you're sitting here going, I'm going to challenge you a little bit because you, you seem, and I could be wrong, but you seem a little less engaged than normal. And I'm going to tell you this. If you've ever watched a Marvel movie and said, oh, that's an Easter egg that reminds me of that movie. Or, or that's, that's, that's a reference to what happened to Thor three movies ago. Or you've ever watched The Mandalorian and like, oh, that's the tip of the hat to The Empire Strikes Back right there. And if you've ever been in awe of that, let me just tell you this. When you make 20 movies within 40 years, that's not hard to do. But when God writes this on the pages of human history, so that He says Bethlehem, and then it is Bethlehem. Then He says, out of Egypt I call My Son. And then Jesus comes out of Egypt as the Son. When He says, a virgin will conceive and be born, and then one is born, and, and, and the people in Israel are saved from Assyria, or from Ephraim and Syria, and then 800, 700, 800 years later, they're saved from their sins, you ought to be thinking, Hollywood has nothing on this. 
nothing on this. This is astounding. This is the sovereign God weaving the patterns of His salvation throughout all of human history. And listen to me. What I find very often, especially in this church, is that people know the right thing to do. They know what they're supposed to do. They've read the verses about what you're supposed to do. If you join this church, you even know that you're supposed to do the hard stuff that's written in the Bible. But we don't trust Him. We know it, but we don't trust Him. We recoil from doing the hard thing, from praising the Lord in the midst of suffering, because we don't trust Him. And then on top of that, someone says, no, I'm going to show you all the different ways people, the prophecies of the Bible are fulfilled, and we go half asleep and think, this is not practical for me. This is not relevant to my life. You are sleeping through your salvation. You are missing what will help you. What will help you is understanding that this God always keeps His Word. And not only does He always keep His Word, but He can weave His Word in so many different ways and accomplish it perfectly. He says a city, that city's where the king's going to be born. You remember in Luke's Gospel? Think about this. In Luke's Gospel, Mary and Joseph are not in Bethlehem. She is very pregnant. I believe the language is great with child. She's not in Bethlehem. And it says that the emperor at that time decided to call a census. And you had to go register in your daddy's town. So Joseph has to load up his wife onto a donkey and make the way down to Bethlehem. Why? Because there was a prophecy to be fulfilled there. Because every single thing He promises always comes to pass exactly how as He promises it. And what's happening here is He actually works it out so that Jesus had to spend His toddler years in Egypt. Why? So He can say to you, this is a new Israel and He's going to bring a new exodus. He's going to bring a new people out of Egypt. That's what Jesus is doing. And if you think that's Easter eggs, if you think that's little references, little tip of the hat, little, little foreshadowing, it gets even more amazing. When we get to Matthew chapter 3, 4, and Jesus goes in the wilderness, how long is He going to go in the wilderness? 40 days. You know, you know anyone else who spent time in the wilderness? Similarly, I guess you read your Bible, your Old Testament last year or something like that. Israel spent 40 years in the wilderness. What happened to Israel? What happened to Jesus when he was in the wilderness 40, 40 days? I do not know what that was, but it's probably awesome. <laughs> what, what happened to Jesus? He was tempted. What happened to Israel when they were in the wilderness 40 years? They were tempted. When Jesus is in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4, what's He going to quote? Scripture. You ever notice what Scriptures? He quotes the Scriptures that Israel was given while they were in the wilderness. Yeah, it's amazing. When Jesus chooses His apostles, how many does He choose? Where'd that number come from? How many tribes of Israel were there? 12. 
This whole gospel is God shouting, but he's not going to do it for you in in sort of a Roman's way. He's not going to say to you, and he is the new Israel. Okay, it's not going to happen that way. It's going to be like, hey, he chose 12 to follow him. You're like, what 12? Why 12? Well, if you remember back in Matthew chapter 2, it was basically saying he was the new Israel coming here to lead a new exodus by his own work on the cross. Wow. Now we're dealing with a God who's spending every day of human history saying, you can trust me. I'm good. Fourth prophecy is another pattern repeated. It's another pattern repeated. So what happens, the the, the prophecy is from the prophet Jeremiah. And it says, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Now, that prophecy gets brought up. Why? Because Jesus, sorry, as Herod wanted to kill Jesus, what did he do? He ordered the execution of every single child under two in Bethlehem. Bethlehem would have been a town of about a thousand people. Scholars estimate that would have been about 20 children killed in that town. And when a pagan king, now listen to me, when a pagan king assaults the people of God so that their livelihood is destroyed, their babies are killed, Matthew goes, that's just like the exile. That's just like the exile when a pagan king came from Babylon and slaughtered us and led us into slavery. And so he goes back to Jeremiah, who's a prophet right before the... Got to work on that one. Right before the exile. Can I just say something to you? How many of you have heard... How many of you have heard that we're living in a generation with a lack of Bible knowledge? Keep your hands up. That's you. That's you. The Bible communicates along these lines, and if you don't know these lines, you can't hear what it's saying. These scriptures are... These scriptures work this way. And and there's two things you can do is you can realize, oh, the Bible works this way, so I'm going to have to figure it out. Or we can do what Americans have done, put put preachers under pressure to preach something easier to understand. Okay? But if you're going to be committed to the text, here's what you've got. And if you'll invest the energy in it, it's amazing. It'll give you everything you need to trust God. Okay, so pagan king descends on Bethlehem, kills the babies, right? All the mothers are weeping. It's not hard to imagine. Matthew's mind goes back to Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a prophet before the exile. Oh, music to my ears. The, the, exile, the exile is another way of calling that. It's called the deportation to Babylon. It's almost like Matthew had a coherent thought. It's almost like he didn't look at his phone 7,000 times a day. And he could carry on a continuous thought. 
So he says, pagan king just comes into Bethlehem, kills a bunch of babies. Matthew's mind goes to Jeremiah. Oh, this has happened again. This has happened before. This is like back in the exile when they came and took our sons. And Rachel, Rachel's just like a mother in Israel, and she's being used to symbolize all the mothers in Israel. Like if we said something like Washington lost the war, we're using Washington to represent the whole nation. Rachel, the mothers in Israel are all weeping. Ramah was just like 12 miles away from Bethlehem. So Jeremiah's grabbing, Matthew's grabbing onto this. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentations. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Now you know what's amazing about this? Now you got to keep working. I'm not. I'm going to keep working until I'm done. So you got to keep working. Jeremiah 31, where this comes from, is probably one of the most exciting, exhilarating, and happy chapters in the whole Bible. That verse I just quoted, that Matthew quotes about the Rachel weeping, it's the only sad verse in the whole chapter. Go back there. And you got to think about this. Matthew would have thought, I'll write this, and then they'll go look this up. I'll write this, and then they'll go read the rest of the chapter. And what they'll realize is that what this chapter is all about is the joy that God is going to bring to the people in the exile. This chapter is about how God is going to make these weeping women sing. This chapter is all about how God is going to take these weeping Israelites and give them a new covenant where God's law is written on their hearts. Listen to me. Matthew is more brilliant than any Hollywood director, any writing room that's ever existed in Hollywood and thought, oh, we can refer to the earlier Star Wars here and the later Star Wars there and mix it all up and everybody will think we're so cool and awesome. It's nothing. It's an imitation of this where God writes all of this in history to reveal his, to this to His people. So you go back to... Jeremiah 31, I'll just read you a few sample verses. Verse 3, I've loved you with an everlasting love. Verse 4, you shall adorn yourself with tambourines. This is the weeping chapter. You shall go forth in the dance of merrymakers. Verse 7, sing aloud with gladness for Jacob and raise shouts for the city chief of the nations. Then if you get to uh, verse 15, You'll see the one Matthew's quoting. It says, The voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted because they are no more. What's the first thing it says after Rachel's been weeping? It says, Stop weeping. Verse 10, Thus says the Lord, Keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. For there is a reward for your work, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord. Your children shall come back to their own country. I have heard Ephraim grieving. The whole chapter is about how Israel, who's in exile at a distance from God, is being subject to all the wickedness and pagan kings. They're going to be brought into singing and dancing and tambourines. And then if, even if you've never thought the words Jeremiah 31 in your life, if you know your Bibles even a little bit, you probably know what comes later in Jeremiah chapter 31. Does anyone know? The new covenant. The covenant that Pastor Jeff is going to lead us to remember in the Lord's Supper is brought to us in Jeremiah 
chapter 31, verse 31, 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Jacob, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them up out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. As Pastor Johnny said in my Sunday school class, this isn't intellectual knowledge. This is intimate knowledge. They shall all know the Lord from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their sins and I will remember their sin no more. What's God doing through all the weeping of those women in Bethlehem? He's preparing a way for the Son who will end all weeping. He's letting you know, this is just like all the weeping of the exile, but the One who's come is the One who's come to end the exile and to bring people back to God. Am I alone or has anybody got an amen in their soul? Because I just think this is amazing. Okay? I don't, I don't want to be convinced that I'm a geek, that I just, this is like Bible student stuff. This, is, this will feed your faith. Now listen to this last one because it's tricky. I said all the prophecies were different. This one's really different. Now remember, at the end of the passage, what happens... Uh, Joseph gets ready to come up from Egypt. He gets another dream. Hey, come on out of Egypt. But then he realizes Herod's son is still ruling and Herod's son wasn't different enough from Herod for Joseph to trust him. And so he decides to go up north to Nazareth. Okay, up north from Nazareth. And wh why did he do that? Verse 23, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. Now I'm going to tell you a little bit about this and then I'll close. Let me tell you a little bit about Nazareth. Jesus was called a Nazarene. Okay? Nazareth is a couple of miles north of the middle of nowhere. Okay? The only reason you know Nazareth is because it's in the Bible. Nazareth is like, is like bacon-level Alabama or Rabbit Hash, Kentucky. I mean, this is, this is or Joe Bat's Arm, Newfoundland. Okay? This is, this is that place. And in fact... It's up in Galilee, and the Galileans were already despised by the more sophisticated folks from Jerusalem, okay? So Jerusalem's the capital city, it's cosmopolitan, it's true Jew. Galilee is kind of mixed. They got Gentiles and Jews living up there. They got a bunch of foreigners and a bunch of locals. And, and the people of Galilee made fun of Nazarenes. Okay, it's like, it's, from being, it's like being from that place in South Dakota that the people in South Dakota make fun of. It's exactly what we're talking about. And when you, when you grew up there, you got, a, you got an accent that they knew about the rest of your life. And I know this because when Jesus, when Peter was denying Jesus, they're like, you're, you're a Nazarene too. You're from Galilee. You're a Jesus follower. And, and Peter says, no, I'm not. One of the people who confronts him says, your accent gives you away. It's like if I said to someone, you're from the deep south. I'm like, no, I'm not, y'all. I'm not. Or someone said to me, you're Canadian. I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm not from Canada. <laughs> okay. You're not buying it. 
and, and to have a Nazarene accent meant that you were marked for life in much the same way as if you say, hey, I, I graduated from high school in Mississippi, and you know, everyone's seeing where Mississippi ranks on the top schools. Jesus walks around with that drawl that says, I'm not from around here, and claims to be the king of the Jews while he's from a place that's clearly despised. And you've got to think about that. I know political correctness, we've polished this all up, but if I were to get alone with you, and we didn't have to say this from a pulpit, we all grew up hearing about people that we'd call Nazarenes, right? My people get called trailer trash. I can tell you where my, fr my, fr my family lives in single wides and double wides in Montana. Okay, but there's a million other names that it wouldn't take you too long to think about that you grew up hearing. Jesus grew up boring one of those names. He was a Nazarene. He was an outcast. He didn't come off as, oh, you must have been one of the best schools in Jerusalem. Are you the king? He bears that his whole life. Now you go back into the Old Testament, you say, where does it fulfill this? Where does it promise this? Where does it say he will be a Nazarene? And here's the answer, nowhere. There's not a single verse that says he'll be a Nazarene. So what's being said? What's being said is that he will be an outcast. He will be despised. And that is in prophecy after prophecy through the whole Old Testament. He'll be like a root out of dry ground, Isaiah 53. No form or majesty or beauty, Isaiah 53. A stranger to my brothers and an alien to my mother's sons. Psalm 22.6. Cut off and have nothing. Daniel 9.26. Deeply despised and abhorred. Isaiah 49, verse 7. He will be called a Nazarene. From the minute he's born in the He's born in a barn, basically. To many, he's dead on the cross. He's an outcast the whole way through. Well, I'll just close with these two thoughts. Do we not have a sovereign God? And if He's sovereign, then you can trust Him. And if you can trust Him, then you can obey Him. And isn't it amazing that what our sovereign God wants to do is not just flex. Look, I can predict things. He's not doing party tricks. He wants to reveal a Savior. His name will be Jesus because He'll save them from their sins. He'll be called Emmanuel, which is God with us. He'll be a king and a shepherd. He'll lead a new exodus out of not just the slavery of Egypt, but the slavery of sin. He'll lead us out of exile, out of weeping, into fullness of joy. And the whole way He'll do it is by being an outcast. By being constantly outside the gates. He'll be called a Nazarene. Emmanuel, you can trust Him. 
And if you're not a believer, won't you repent and believe and trust in Him? I'll look like a fool. He did it first for you. I'll look like an outcast. Yes, you will. But you will be on the right side of history. You will be on the side of the One who came to lead us out of sin by His death on the cross. You will be on the side of the One who came to rule our souls, not as a king with a club, but as a shepherd of the crook. And He will lead you all the way out of, ex- out of Egypt, all the way out of exile, and to the very promised land of heaven. Let's pray. Father, we come before You and ask You that You would make Your Word profitable to Your people so we could glorify You with our lives. In Jesus' name, Amen.